You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. About a month ago, something happened at one of our congressional hearings on Capitol Hill that just really kind of caught my attention. Steve Cohen, a Democratic member of the Judiciary Committee, was swearing in several people who were about to give sworn testimony to a subcommittee. And as standard, part of the procedure was they asked the witnesses that were about to testify to stand or raise their right hand, and they were asked, do you swear or affirm under the penalty of perjury the testimony you are about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief. The witnesses affirmed and the hearing was set to begin. Now, immediately, a point of order was called and it was noted that there were four words omitted. So help me, God. The individual making the point of order asked the chair and said, can these individuals be sworn in again and those four words be added in? And the chair, Steve Cohen, declined by saying, I think God belongs in religious institutions, in temple, in church, in cathedral, in mosque, but not in Congress. He further went on to say that what the other side was doing in demanding the phrase, so help me God, was used nothing more than so they could be using God. And he said, using God, God doesn't want to be used. Interestingly, this phrase, so help me God, is now being omitted in many of the congressional oaths taking place in the halls of Congress today. Now, if you, again, you look back, there's a very, very long and a rich tradition in America that so many oaths end with this phrase, so help me God. The military oath of enlistment ends with, so help me God. The commissioned officer's oath ends with these words, so help me God. The president of the United States, when he is sworn in and is taking the oath, it ends with these four words, so help me God. So is omitting this phrase, these four words, is it really that big of a deal? Now, those who support the use of this phrase, especially in the context of giving sworn testimony, say it is to remind those who are taking the oath to understand the truth of what they are about to provide. It's not just crucial in that particular moment They wanted them to understand that this testimony they're about to provide is going to follow them into eternity, and that someday they are going to stand before someone, God, and they are going to have to give an account to the oath they swore to. Now, whether you believe that phrase should be used or not, I think we would all agree There are certain things every one of us need God to help us with and that only God can provide, which is why I want to begin a series uh, for this summer where we're going to be talking about, so help me, God. And in this series, we're going to kind of begin to deal with several key areas in our lives where we all need help, every one of us. 
And I believe that God is the only one who can provide us with the help we all so desperately need. Today, we're going to look at an area where every person born needs help with. And it is one that most of us are the least likely to admit we need help with. It is an area in our lives where we're kind of tempted to think successful people wouldn't struggle with. But I ran across a very interesting article not too long ago, and it kind of reaffirmed what I want to talk about here today. And the article was called, Why Highly Successful People Seek Therapy. And the article kind of talked about the five most common reasons that highly successful people kind of seek out counseling or therapy or help. And the number one reason is what they called the imposter syndrome. Now, if you're not familiar with that, that's okay. I wasn't either. Imposter syndrome in the article was kind of described as the persistent feeling that you're just not good enough, that you're inadequate, that you're a fraud and a fake. In other words, it's really kind of a struggle with self-esteem, our worth, our value as a person. Now, even though you may not be familiar with that syndrome, it affects everybody, even the richest, the most successful, the most famous, those that we kind of tend to think have got it together. Let me give you one example. The recording artist Madonna is one of the richest, she is probably one of the most well-known musicians, uh, female musicians in America. She has an approximate value of net worth of about 800 million. She's got plenty of money, okay? She's been at the top of the music world for about over 30 years. She would be considered by many people to kind of be the epitome of success, of wealth, of fame. And yet I want you to listen to what she says in a very recent interview. She says, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been devoted to conquering some horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. And that is always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now, that is a textbook definition of what the article identified as the imposter syndrome. So here's the thing. Madonna needs help with Madonna, and Jeff needs help with Jeff, and you need help with you, and the only one who can provide Madonna, me, and you, and everybody else with the help we so desperately need is God. And so this morning, I want to start this series, So Help Me God With Me. For this series, any biblical message, any sermon that I would ever give, for it to bring about any profound, significant change in your life, it has to start with you. It has to start with you. 
The person who needs the most help from God is not the person sitting next to you. It's not the person you're married to. It's not your boss. It's not your kids. It's not your coworker. It's you. As long as you continue to live and to think everyone else is the source to all of your problems, your struggles, your challenges, the longer and the deeper you're going to be stuck in frustration and misery. The vast majority of counseling I've ever been involved with usually revolves around people blaming other people for all of their problems. Now, I'll admit, you know, people can be a source. They can be a contributor. They can be a part of the problems, the struggles, the challenges you're facing. But as long as you're only willing to look at other people and what needs to change about them and try to fix them, you're going to get nowhere because you are the biggest problem to you. You just lack the humility and the maturity to see it and to understand it. And I'm applying all of this to me too. I don't want you to think I'm here pointing out you and not me. Again, the greatest struggle every one of us has is on the inside, and that is the place we tend to look least. We tend to kind of focus more on the outside thing. And one of the areas we all struggle in is that we are trying to get from other people what only God himself can provide meaningfully. We want to look to others to provide our value, our worth as human beings. And again, because I am imperfect, you're imperfect, we're all sinful, selfish people, we often fail each other and we fail miserably. That's why over 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Paul wrote a letter to a church in Ephesus. And in that letter, Paul understood this struggle that we all have. And Paul wants to speak to what it really truly means and what it looks like to have a godly self-image and a self-esteem that God intended and created us to have. Because again, until you see yourself, first and foremost, yourself through the eyes of God, you're never going to begin to see other people through the eyes of God. And when you don't see yourself as God sees you, you will never see yourself as you were created and meant to be. Because we are all created in his image and in his likeness. And you'll never, ever Be or see yourself the way you could or should be or the way you were created to live this life until you see yourself through God's eyes. Now, the important thing to keep in mind regarding the book of Ephesians is that it is written to a group of people who were followers of Jesus Christ, Christians. I say that because what Paul is writing to them He is writing to everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, and that includes us here today. What Paul says is true of 
them in that church in Ephesus is also true of every one of us who are in relationship and union with Christ. Because only when I am abiding in and living from Christ in me can I be who I was meant and created to be. So right there in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gives us three things, three just great nuggets that can help each one of us become all God has created us to be in order that our lives would be a blessing for us and then we would also be a blessing to others. The first thing is we must recognize our position, our standing with Jesus. We got to recognize, we've got to embrace, and we've got to begin to walk in our position, our standing, our identity with Jesus. It's important to note how Paul is addressing these believers, these Christians in Ephesians verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now note again, Paul kind of begins there in verse 1, and he's referring to those believers, those Christians, as saints. Now understand, again, Paul's talking to ordinary, common, first century, spirit-filled believers who were an active part of the New Testament church, just like you and I are today. Paul's not referring to some special, elevated class of Christians here as saints. Paul believed every follower of Jesus was a saint, and every saint was a follower of Jesus Christ. It didn't matter how long you had been a Christian. didn't matter where you were from, your background, your education, your upbringing, the church you attended. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you were also a saint. Unfortunately, we've kind of been surrounded by teachings and practices by certain churches that confuse this notion by implying that only the very special Christians can uh, achieve sainthood. I remember a long time ago seeing an article entitled, Mother Teresa, Will Sisters of the Street Become a Saint? And the article kind of struck me because it kind of talked about that, you know, uh, since the year 1234, more than 4,000 people had been made saints by the Catholic Church. And I'm not picking on Catholic, don't, I'm not Catholic bashing, please don't think that. Interestingly, the the article talked about only the Pope was the only one uh, who could determine who will and who will not be designated or identified as a saint. And and it kind of listed this very complicated uh, process uh, that you had to go through in order to become a saint. And the fastest anyone ever was made a saint was 17 years. And according to Catholic tradition, in order to become a saint, here are the 10 steps that had to be accomplished or met. Number one, you you had to be a Catholic. Number two, you must be dead. Okay, that excludes all of us here, right? A local devotion 
had to grow up around your memory. So, so when they thought of you um, in your former life, that there was kind of a, a devotion, a, a, a great memory had grown up around your memory. Uh, number four is your life is investigated. Uh, your local bishop sends your case to the Vatican. Number six, someone prays to you for a miracle. And number seven, the Vatican investigates whether or not the miracle happened. Number eight, the Vatican declares you blessed. Um, Nine, someone prays for another miracle, and it verifiably, there we go, happens. And number 10 is you're made a saint. Now, if you're fortunate to have made it through all those 10 steps, someone ended up usually paying over a million dollars to go from step one to 10. And then the Pope declares you a saint in a solemn uh, ceremony known as canonization, usually at a public mass. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not picking on the Catholic Church, but there's just really one big problem with that scenario. Jesus has really already beat the Catholic Church and the Pope to the punchline because Paul says the moment you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you are immediately fully declared a saint by God. Now, according to Paul, it just takes one step, and it's at no cost to you to become a saint and that is to believe, to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And again, it, it costs you nothing to do that because everything that we need in order to be declared a saint, Jesus has already provided. He's paved the way. Now, here's an interesting fact. Did you know the Bible rarely, if ever, describes a Christian as sinner's? That's true. The Bible rarely describes a Christian as a sinner. Now, unbelievers, non-Christians, are, are referred to as sinners more than over 300 times. But overwhelmingly, the Bible refers to Christians as saints or holy or righteous more than 200 times. Listen to how 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 describes a follower of Christ. And again, if you're a follower of Christ, this is true of you as well. Here's what he says. But you are God's chosen treasure. You are God's chosen treasure. Priests who are kings. A spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He has called you out of darkness to experience his marvelous light, and now he claims you as his very own. This is who you are. Now, why, why did he do this? He tells you he did this so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. For at one time, you were not God's people, but now you are. At one time, you knew nothing of God's mercy because you hadn't received it yet, but now you are drenched with it. 
This is who you are in Christ. This is who I am in Christ. This is how God sees you and me. Is this how you see you? Is this how you see yourself? Or are you being identified, labeled, owned by someone or something other than your heavenly Father? Listen carefully. I'm going to leave this up for a couple of seconds. As Christ followers, you are a sinner by activity at time. But you are a saint by identity always. As a Christ follower, as a Christian, you are a sinner by activity at time. But you are a saint by identity always, forever. We get that, we get that turned around. See, we think we are saints by activity at times. So when I'm good, when I do good, when I do what God wants me to do, then God looks at me, God loves me, God calls me his child, God identifies me as a saint, but I am always, always, always a sinner. I'm always disappointing, I'm always failing, I'm always letting God down. But boy, there are those moments, those breakthroughs where, where I, I do what I know God wants me to do and I feel good about me and I know God feels good about me and everything is good. No, no, that's what the enemy wants you to think. If you're a Christ follower, you're a sinner by, nat- by activity at times, but you are a saint by identity always. Why is that? Simply because it's got nothing to do with your performance. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's not about what you say or you don't say. It has everything to do with your position, your standing in Christ. Everyone outside of Jesus, outside of a relationship with Jesus, is a sinner. Everybody inside of a relationship with Jesus Christ is a saint, a priest, a king, a chosen child of God. If you are a Christ follower, you are a saint, not because of anything that you have done for God, but because of what Jesus did for you on your behalf. You're not a saint because of what you do based on your performance. You are a saint because of who you are based on your position, your standing in Christ. So the first thing that we got to do is, man, we have got to recognize who we are in Jesus and that we are saints. Paul's talking to us there in verse 1. Second thing is you got to realize your possessions from Jesus. So you realize your position Next, you want to realize, what are my possessions from Jesus? We live in a world that likes to measure others by what they have, the car they drive, the job they have, the house they live in. Let's face it, we all measure ourselves by what we have, especially compared to what others have. What you're about to read next is going to open many eyes to just what all we have in Jesus. Verse 3, blessed... Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has past tense, it's been done, who has blessed us in Christ. All right, that, that's being in that relationship. It's being in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, there's two words I want you to especially kind of focus on there and kind of put a circle around, at least in your mind, and that is the word has and the word every. Now, Paul is not telling us that one day God will give us all we need. Paul says he's already done that. It's already been given. It's already been provided. Nor are we told that God has given us some of what we need, and we'll get the rest at a later point. We're told here in Ephesians that God has already given us all that we need to be all that God created, called, and destined us to be. The greatest blessings in life are not material because one day you're going to lose them or you're going to leave them. The greatest blessings that God has for us in this life are spiritual, and we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing that can be found in Jesus. So think about it. You have all the love that you need. God has provided all the love you need. What God's trying to do is he's trying to remove the obstacles, the hindrances that keep you from knowing, understanding, and walking in the fullness of that love. So there, there are things that are hindering you. There are things that are holding you back from receiving and walking in the fullness of God's love. It's not that you need more of God's love. It's all there. You just need to begin to learn how to receive it and to walk in it. God's already provided all the joy you need. You have all the peace that you need. The Bible says it's peace. The world doesn't understand. You've got it. It's the peace that's going to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's already there in all of its fullness. You just have to begin to accept it, receive it, walk in it. You have all the goodness you're ever going to need. You have all the goodness and the kindness and the mercy you're going to need. God has provided it all. Again, the question is, have you received it? Only God can give it. Only you can receive it. God cannot force you to receive what he freely and fully gives. I can give you a gift. Unless you receive the gift, it's not going to do much for you. Too often, we ask for something we already have that God's already provided. We don't need as much as we think we need because whatever we need, the Bible says we already have in all of its fullness. Once you realize what you have in Jesus, you'll quit asking God for blessings, and you'll just start thanking him applying it, walking in it. I, I, I hear people all the time that they keep asking God for the same thing over and over and over and over, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just think there comes a point in, in where I want to begin to shift out of asking for it and just begin 
thanking him for it. God, I I ask you for the joy that is already mine in its fullness and then begin to shift. And I, I thank you, God, for all the joy that has already been provided, that's already there for me. God, again, help me to just walk in that in its fullness. That, that's, that's the difference. You already have all the patience you need. You just got to walk in it. He's already provided it. He's already given it to you. You already have full, unfettered access to it. You need healing? It was provided for in the atonement. Isaiah 53, 5 says, when Jesus took the beating, when he was scourged, he said, Isaiah 53, 5 says, by his scourging, by his whipping, we were healed. Not we're going to be healed someday. We were healed. Our healing was accomplished. It was provided for in the atonement. Again, apply it. Receive it walk in it. Thank God for it. But don't keep asking and begging God for what he's already given, already provided. The moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, Paul says he gives you every spiritual blessing. The reason is very simple. Once you get Jesus, you you have all that Jesus has, and Jesus has it all woman walked into a bank and she said, I'd like to open a joint account. The banker said, we'd be more than happy to help you. Who would you like to open that account with? And she said, a billionaire. You already have an account with Jesus Christ who has been given all things by his heavenly Father and his desire, Jesus' desire, the heart of God, his desire is to share all of that you. It has already been fully, freely given. The question for us is, have you received it? Have you, are you walking in it? Jesus is greater than the greatest, richer than the richest. So for your grief, he has given grace. For your problems, you have his wisdom. For your weakness, you have his strength. For your fears, you have his power. For your needs, you have his will. For your sins, you have his blood, which provided for your forgiveness. We tend to think our problem is we don't have what we need, when the real problem is we don't realize how much we already have in abundance, and we can get it. We have access to it anytime we need it. There may be some of you here who are not followers of Jesus. You've maybe not become a Christian because you feel like you could never live up to the standards or the expectations of the Christian life. Listen to this verse from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has, past tense, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Stop and think about that. What else is there outside of life and godliness? I can't think of anything. Another way of putting that is he's provided everything for this life and the life to come. What else is left? Nothing. He's provided for all of that through the knowledge of him. That's the key. 
The more you get to know him, the more you'll get to know and to understand all that he's given us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What you just heard is this. You have all the power you need to live the life God calls and wants you to live. You have all the blessings you need to be all that God created, designed, and destined you to be. By the way, that is the way God has always, always, always operated with his children. You go back to the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. Look at these words in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, 28. This is before the fall. This is before Adam and Eve have sinned and rebelled against God. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them, and God did what? See that? The very moment God created Adam and Eve, and established a relationship with them, he blessed them. Now, in the fall, who changed? Mankind did. We went from walking freely in the cool of the garden with God to hiding from God. Did God change? No. God was not, you know, Mr. Happy God, you know, before Adam and Eve fell, you know, and Mr., you know, easy go, easy going God, and, you know, Mr. Happy God, then Adam and Eve fell, and then he became the angry, the wrathful God. That's what we think, at least that's what I hear people kind of talk about God in those terms. God never changes. What he is, he always was, and he always will be. There's no change, there's no shifting with God. And the first thing that God does in a relationship with Adam and Eve is he blesses them. What's the first thing that he does with us in a relationship with him? He blesses us. Why? Because that's who he is. That's all God knows. Bless my children. They didn't ask God to bless them. They didn't do anything to deserve or to earn God's blessing. He just blessed them because that's who he is, and that's what he does. God doesn't bless you because of what you do for him. He blesses you because of what Jesus has done for us. So what's your position? You're a saint. The holiness of God has separated you because that is one of the things holiness is designed to do. It separates us from sin and it separates us and joins us to God's righteousness. When you become a Christian, God declares you righteous in his sight. The moment you become a born-again believer, God declares you righteous in your sight. He takes you from the kingdom of darkness and brings you into the kingdom of his marvelous light. He declares you and I to be in right standing, to be in good relationship with him because you received the free gift of his grace through what Jesus did. I didn't do a thing. He did it all. I get it all. So out of your new position as a saint in Christ, you're realizing your walk in your possessions out of every spiritual blessing that God himself has to offer. He's emptied. I mean, he has poured his complete treasure chest into my life and into your life so that we can be who God created us to be, that we can 
walk in the fullness of our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.